Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I have such an exciting episode for you today. I'm diving right in because once again, we're speaking to three of my faves and this episode's a little longer than usual. Some of you said you wanted longer episodes, so poof, wish granted. I also have no life update for you. I've done nothing for the past week except go to the flower market. I just found out that I can get two dozen roses for $15, so I'll be there every Friday. I also found out that one of my really good friends has a standing appointment at the flower market. So she drives down from North Hollywood, we go to the flower market, and then we have tea at my house and catch up on girl time. So this makes me really, really happy. The other thing that I've been doing, I'm embarrassed to tell you about. I started watching Homeland. I started about a month and change ago. I'd never seen any episode of Homeland ever before. I don't know how I missed it. It's one of the greatest shows ever on television. But I've missed like a bunch of really good stuff when it was on. Like I didn't watch Breaking Bad when it was on TV. I didn't watch The West Wing while it was on TV either. I waited until the show was done and had been off for a few years before I watched it. Maybe like six weeks ago, I got this notification from PayPal that it just paid for my showtime. And I was like, I didn't delete that? I've been paying for Showtime all this time? I was like, well, hell, since I've got at least another 30 days with Showtime, I might as well make the best use of it. So I start flipping through. I find Homeland. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember everyone was talking about this show. I'll give it a watch. And I went in totally blind. I knew nothing about this show whatsoever. I went through the first three seasons and in maybe a week and change. And by a week and change, I mean like eight days. I got stuck with season four because I moved in the middle of that. It took me a full 30 days to get through season five. I think that's the weakest season. But I'm on season eight, episode 10. This is one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And everyone's like, wait, just wait until you see the finale. Like, girl. So I went to the flower market and and I've been binging Showtime. That's what my life has been. But in between that, I've been staying up to date on what's going on in the world. There's much, very much. And I have three experts that are coming on today to help me make sense of everything. So first up is one of my favorite people on earth, Mike Muse. He is the co-founder of Muse Recordings, a music executive, pop culture expert, political expert, and change agent. By intersecting politics and pop culture, Mike uses his platform to create social change. As an industrial engineer turned media entrepreneur, Mike is host of SiriusXM's award-winning show, The Mike Muse Show. He's also co-host of Sway in the Morning. Mike wrote this great piece for Level earlier this week, why black men don't like Kamala Harris and how it can stop. It's not an easy conversation to have, but it's an important one. Now, the headline is a little inflammatory. I highly suggest that you head to Level and you read the entire article. It takes about six minutes or so. It is a nuanced discussion of why some black men, not all, but some black men are unhappy that Kamala Harris was picked for VP. Now, I knew the article was coming. Shortly after Harris was announced at VP, I noticed there was a lot of anger coming from black men, and I wanted to know what that was about. Now, Mike and I have talked about collaborating a couple times before. I thought this would be a good reason to have him on Ratchet and Respectable. So, call myself being a good friend, 
I wanted to support Level. I've worked with a lot of editors there throughout my journalism career, and I just wrote a piece for them last week, and I love my edits from JFK. Shout out to him. But I call myself being a great friend. I posted a screenshot of of Mike's story on my page, and I said, great read on Level Mag today. I have so many thoughts, primarily about the graph where Mike observes that the focus of the Dems lately has been so heavily on black women and has left black men thinking, what about us? It's an accurate observation, but I fail to see the problem. The issue here is emblematic of a larger community issue. When something happens to or for or by black men, black women think that we did good, good for us, see President Obama. Or we think, oh no, something bad happened to us, we must organize, see Black Lives Matter founders or George Floyd. When something happens good, bad to black women, we get a lot of, but what about me, see reference article as it pertains to Kamala Harris. Or if it's bad, that's a woman problem. Y'all should solve that and let me know how it turns out. See rape, domestic violence, single mothers, street harassment, maternal death, breast cancer, fibroids, equal pay, etc. And I asked, why don't black men, us, we, black women, I said, answer deep misogyny. I think the one I read to you is the one that I edited. And when you hear the interview, you'll hear us talk about it. Initially, I didn't say Mike Muse observes. I think I said he writes. And he did not like my caption. He sent me a text. I won't read it verbatim, but basically he said, D, I'm hurt at the way that you've characterized me. Like you've gone on your platform and you've called me a misogynist to like 150,000 plus black women. And I was like, I would never, I would never do that to you. You're my friend. I love you. I would never. We had a bit of a disagreement about that, which you'll hear play out on the podcast. We had an interview scheduled, and even though he was unhappy with me, he was like, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to come on your podcast. But can we discuss what just happened here? And so we did. I had the, the recorder rolling from the time that he called. In the first five minutes, we spent hashing out our different point of views on how the caption came across. And I asked him if I could keep our, our discussion, our conflict resolution in the podcast because... This type of thing, it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens from time to time. When people write about the things that other people do or say, sometimes you get a text, sometimes you get a DM, sometimes you get a call. It doesn't always have to escalate into a blow up. Sometimes you could just be like, I'm sorry, that was not my intent. How can I fix this? Which is what had to happen between me and Mike. He's a dear friend of mine. I would never do anything to hurt him. And if I thought he was out here being a raging misogynist, I would be in his text like, bruh. He would do the same for me, like he did, because he was like, sis, this caption, it's a problem. So we hashed it out, and you'll hear that play out in our discussion. So can we, can we get to it? Hello? Hey, Demetrius. Hey, how are you? Good, how you doing? I'm good. Good. I will say that I, I didn't know if this interview was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen once I said hello. Like, are we good? No, I was still going to do it. Okay. <laughs> I commit my commitments. Well, I just want to be clear that, like, the, the Instagram post that I put up was not specifically speaking to you. It was speaking to a larger <clears throat> issue. And I would never blast you like that. If I didn't agree, I would just, like, send you a series of text messages or call you. Not if you felt that way. You felt that way. And I apologize for that because that was not my intent. I think 
think people don't read nuance, which is what my article was talking about. And I think people read headlines and captions. And even the caption I wrote on my Instagram, I said, please make sure you read all the way to the end before you, you comment. And most people just comment on the click or the title, which is totally fine. But then even your caption, people aren't going to read the article, right? And if you have a very, tr- your audience trusts you. Um, you have a very large audience um, of black women primarily and although you were calm and misogynistic the other paragraphs ahead of it was like here's what this writer says and then the second part is black women support black men but then when black women want to do something it becomes a what about us and then the answer is misogyny so it's inferring that that's what I was saying right and then the comments they picked up on that, right? And so you weren't saying it about me, but you inferred it about you. The, the inference that that is the angle I'm coming from the article, and it's not. And even the paragraph after I talk about, you know, the campaign of primaries about black women's issues, the next paragraph I write after that, and I say that as it should be, right? And I support that, right? And like that, I was saying I, I'm in lock and step with that, right? And then. The next, but then my next statement was that we can also talk about black. Can we talk about black men? And I said to the Democratic Party, not just a Kamala. And I was like, the Democratic Party has to stop talking about black people, black men, from a criminalization point of view, of criminal justice, right? And I've even mentioned before we had Cory Booker on the stage, and he didn't bring up any issues around black men, right? And I talked to Cory's campaign about that. I talked to Cory about that while he was running, right? And so this was long before you know the Kamala selection even came up, right? And my one of my first article actually on level back in February was that Canvas needs to start talking about black male issues, right? And I always put in a disclaimer normally and, and uh, the editors are like, you have to stop doing it because it's, you gotta let it live. But I always say, just because I'm advocating for black men doesn't take away the advocacy for others, right? And it's not marginalizing others nor putting it in front of the other space. And so I work really hard for that fine line and for that nuance. Um, it's really big for me and it's a really big, what makes my work so special and why I like really take care of that gray space and that nuance. Um, and it just came out wrong, I think. And it's not your intention, but it's inferred that that's kind of what it is. But um, here we are. At least I get a chance to explain it. Just to be clear, like I was really speaking to a specific paragraph where you spoke about the perspective of black men and or some mm-hmm. black men. And I was addressing that. And when we get off the call, I'll go and make an edit to make sure it's more clear. All right, thank you. Because I don't want to misrepresent you and I don't want to misrepresent your work. You are a friend, first and foremost. You are near and dear to me. And I don't want to um, negate or remove polish from your voice in any way. That's totally not my intent. I genuinely invited you here to have an open discussion about an issue that I had noticed. And when I reached out to you, you said, I'm on it. I've got a piece coming up. Like, let's talk next week after my piece drops. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think if you can make that addendum or however you want to do it, that would mean a lot to me. Just because I want to make sure that comes through. But feel free to ask questions, right? And that's the point of this. If I, if I agree to talk to someone, like, for example, I don't go on certain, I get for requests, for interview requests, I don't go on a show or television if I know it's going to be a getcha gotcha moment or people looking for, for moments, right? Like we don't want to hear nuance. And so... I trust you and I value your opinion and I know that when I said yes to you I was like oh shit 
because you're going to come from a different perspective than I have, right? And but also those going to come from an informed place and a place of curiosity. And so feel free to keep that sentiment going. I'm not afraid of any question. You know what I mean? So that's fine. But just, you know, in the Instagram, if you could just make that, that edit, I guess that'd be dope. So, I got you. Yeah. And I'm happy to do it. All right, cool. Woo! Okay. My first question to you is, were you surprised by your, your male friend's reaction to Kamala Harris? I was shocked. I don't know if I was surprised. I was shocked. I knew that a lot of my black male friends had strong reservations about Senator Harris, but I just didn't know the veracity of it. And I didn't recognize, I hate to say the majority, but a large percentage of my black male friends did not like her. I would definitely say they supported a black female candidate, period, full stop. But they didn't support this particular black female candidate. A lot of them wanted Susan Rice. A lot of them really wanted Stacey Abrams. And when Congresswoman um, Bass, sorry, Jesus Bass, Karen Bass, a lot of them were excited for her. So they literally were supporting black women. I think that's important to note is that they weren't saying don't pick a black woman. They were excited for a black woman selection, just not this one. So the amount of it, and Demetra, I even had my best friend who, he, he has been my best friend since 1998. He's married to a black woman, two beautiful black daughters, and he's from a, a, a southern state. But he and I don't talk about politics, right? That's just not his bad, right? We'll talk about everything under the sun except for politics. He doesn't even call me when political breaking news happens. When he, Biden, made the announcement of Kamala, he literally, Demetri, was my first text. She was like, what the fuck? How could he pick her? <laughs> and I was like, not you, bro. Like, you don't even hit me on political breaking news. Like, that's just not what we talked about. And he wasn't happy about this election. And so for me, I was noticing that the Democratic Party has a larger issue to contend with. The Biden-Harris ticket has a larger issue to contend with. It's just not a few hotel men sitting in the corner, right? (laughs) It is a wide range of black men who are not supporting this. You break it down very well in your article on Level for Mm -hmm. the people who have not read it yet. What exactly is... Some, not all of black men, but a very vocal contingent. What is their issue with with Senator Harris? It literally comes down to her record on criminal justice, right? And that's all that centers around. And I was very, I worked really hard to make sure I didn't make it about anything else, right? Because, you know, black people, both male and female, we have all the issues around the black community and you and I could be on this podcast for literally three days straight and still not address all the issues of the black community. And so I was very intentional on making sure it wasn't about anything else because for me, the number one response I've been getting is about her record. What's also too interesting, Demetria, a lot of people don't even understand the breadth and context of her record. They feel that she, she overly prosecuted when she was in San Francisco district attorney. And they felt like when she was the California Attorney General, too many black men got locked up underneath her purview. And they also believe that she criminalized the poor, right? Some say poor, some say black, and some say black families when it came down to her truancy, this law that she created. And so for the audience who may not be aware that if a child was truant, then the parent could be arrested. They did not like that. 
Was anyone ever arrested under that law, though, or the truancy law? Because I remember on her breakfast club, she was like, no one ever got locked up for that. Well, that's why I stated in my article, she needs to talk to black men and have a real conversation with us. And I was very careful in the article to say not that she owes us, right, or, and not that she has to earn our vote. Because I do a comparison and contrast to Trump's record on criminal justice, to Biden's, but, and then also, too, to the, to the Obama-Biden criminal justice plan, but then also too, Demetria, do a, a comparison between Vice President Pence and Kamala Harris because that's apples to apples, right? And so we have data that suggests what did he do when he was an executive of, of, of a state, right? But I also put in there, Demetria, there's a, there's a misconception of her record that is out there, and so she needs to clear that up because some would say that they were arrested for, uh, for truancy. Now, they could have been arrested for other things. I don't know. But she needs to talk about that then, because there are people who said they were arrested as a result of this truancy act that, that took place. There's this big misconception on the Internet that she was responsible for allowing essentially uh, slavery and indentured service by having prisoners still work to tend the land, the farm fields, and to fight fires, right? That was a major attack for her that's on, on social media and online, right? And... What came out was she said that's actually not true. And where it stems from is the United States Supreme Court said that California had to reduce the prison population by a certain percentage for overcrowding and due to safety. What then came to pass was that people within Kamala Harris's office of attorney general, her attorneys were arguing that they didn't, they didn't need to be released and that there wasn't um, any overpopulation to do harm to those individuals who are locked up and that they actually were needed for actual labor and to work to help fight up, to fight these fires, right? So that's out there, that's a narrative and it's facts that her attorneys were arguing not to reduce the prison population, but to keep them in there and then to keep the labor going. Conrad Senator Harris came out, right, while she was attorney general and she states she didn't know that her attorneys were arguing against the Supreme Court to keep the prison population at the level that it was at and to keep the inmates at that point where they still had to tend the land for, for lack of better conversation. She said she had no idea. Once she found that out, she made them reverse the course. So again, but that's such a strong narrative that's out there on social media. She came around and disavowed it when it happened, but we don't know that, right? If only we're going to know that now are people who read this article, who hear this podcast. But it will be great if she could address this herself now that she has this large platform as a vice presidential you know, nominee where she can clear up all the rumors. And also, too, she can address the hard truths you know, of her record, right? But that's a huge misconception that in my article I wanted to make sure I highlight was actually false. And like you just said, she went to the breakfast club and said that they weren't, you know, prosecuted for truancy. She needs to keep talking about this because this is a real narrative that's out there. Some of it's real and some of it is false. I appreciate that in your piece, you kept the focus on what I think are real issues. I think talking about her work, talking about her professional record, her criminal justice record, very, very valid. But a lot of the commentary that I see online, a lot of it is personal attacks. Like she's not black enough. She's a bed wench. She's a hoe. Commentary about her white husband. I think people don't like her for criminal justice issues. And I think that's reasonable. But there's also a lot of misogyny going on in here too, I think. All 
all, all of what you're saying are correct, right? But I think we have to break it out a little bit more. And, and thank you for breaking that up. I think a lot of those people who are saying, there's a lot of white people who are saying that, which is in my article, I, I, I out the gate acknowledge her as being a black woman. And I out the gate talk about that famous Malcolm X quote about the most disrespected, unprotected, uh, neglected person in America is a black woman. And in, a, in that position, I say that I recognize her as a black woman. She is a black woman. And so therefore she needs to be protected as a black woman because what the white people are going to do, the Republican Party and those who are anti-Biden, Kamala, anti-Democrats, anti-Obama, they are going to do a number on her. Honestly, Dimitri, for me, this is bigger than Kamala. It's bigger than the vice presidency. It's bigger than the presidency. For me, if we allow white America to attack and use this racist, this birtherism, these dog whistles. Now they're getting, they are no longer dog whistles. They're just full on bullhorns now attacking a black woman. It unconsciously frees other white races in these spaces of institutions like academic corporations, you know, education to do these type of racist rhetoric unchecked because none of us stood up for her and protected her. And it seems like none of them is being disavowed. That's one thing. The second thing is the race is that has come up with some of my black male friends, not all my black male friends, and, and I'm talking about those, the non-scientific pool of black men who have been calling it the last two weeks, their issue hasn't been, is she black enough, right? There, that has been a couple questions, and I'm going to be fully transparent, that has been a couple of questions. I've gotten those callers on my radio show in the morning who called up and made mention to that. But I think, Demetri, that goes to a larger conversation we're having, not even about Kamala. That that goes into the ADOS conversation. African de- de- descendants of slavery. Slavery, ADOS. yeah. So I think this ADOS movement, take Kamala out of it, has created dissension amongst the black black Americans, right, and the African diaspora, right? Who is essentially is black? That is the conversation and debate that is being had right now, right? Some believe that only those who are deemed black are those who are like literally the, the, the great, 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 great grandchildren of slavery who were brought over here. Some believe that if you immigrated over here from Jamaica or an island country or from any other country, you're not technically Ados. And so then there's this new loose definition of black. So I think that Kamala's appointment now has come in the middle of this very polarizing for the black community debate on Ados, right? And then who can be called black and, and then who isn't black. So to directly answer your question is yes, a part of this is she's not black enough because of the fact that she has a Indian mother, but then she also has a father who's a Jamaican immigrant, right? And so I think what you're hearing is the Ados discourse because there's, the Ados community is really large on social media, as you know. I get hit up a lot on social media from members who identify as ADOs and then people who identify as part of the ADOs movement. Um, they have a strong voice. And I think a lot of them are ratcheting up this narrative of she's not black enough. Yes. And wait, how old are you? Are you, are you how much younger? Like, I'm 41. We're in the same age, a little, okay. maybe a little younger. Maybe okay. older, but maybe a little younger. Okay, okay. all right. My, my bad. I didn't mean to ask a gentleman about his age. Yeah, I've been drinking a lot of water to Okay, my bad. Excuse me. That was my poor manners. It's always very interesting to me with like the, you know, the Eidos conversation because mm-hmm. I'm from a generation where like if you had a black parent, you were black and it didn't matter right. if you were Jamaican or African or Brazilian, South American, Caribbean, yes. wherever. It was like you're black. 
And now yes. it's very much like, no, no, you're not. Like, you're, we're parsing. And I was just like, I'm not used to this parsing. Like, this is new for me. I'm from Lansing, Michigan. To, to your audience, I'm from Lansing, Michigan. If Kamala came to Lansing Mall when I was growing up, right? Not as a senator, but this is Kamala. And if we would hang out in the food court, I would see her as just a light-skinned black girl. Nothing about biracial. I wouldn't even see her as biracial. I literally would just see her as a light-skinned black girl. And then the fact that, you know, she's Greek, I'm Greek, and I say that if I was at the University of Michigan, I'm a Kappa, and that, you know, we were having a Kappa party, and I seen her strolling at a party, you know, ski-weeing, I would just think that, oh, that's the AKA from Howard. She looks just like my sister, right? Like, who's an AKA, right? So everything for me is black woman, right? I don't see anything other. And it wasn't until I moved to the coast, right, to New York, that's our understanding how people identified, you know, not as I grew up. You know, Lansing, Michigan, the black or you white, period. Mm-hmm. Like, there was nothing in between. We didn't have, like, Caribbean culture. We didn't have, like, East or West African culture, right? Like, we didn't have, you know, Filipinos that were mixed with black. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have, like, none of that. To your point, like, if you just had half a parent that was black, you were black, right? And that's how we saw it. But now this Eidos movement has really created this polarizing and unfortunate conversation in black America and it's due to obviously around reparations, right? Like who's qualified to get the check just to boil it down to simplicity, right? Like who's qualified for reparations, right? Who's qualified to get this check? And what they're saying is only if you're a descendant of a slave, right? And not if you come over here from another country and it's, I think it's ripping our community apart. I think Demetria, if she would have ran for president in 2016, I don't know if we'll be having this type of discourse that we're having around her identity now. Which is interesting, Demetrius, the one person I talk about, my one male, my one black male friend who is in favor of it is, and I was careful on how a word is, I didn't want to give it his identity, but his daughter is Kamala, right? He comes from a Caribbean country, her, and, and that's my boy, and then his wife is, you know, Indo-Pakistanian. And together, you know, they have, you know, two beautiful children. For him, he sees Kamala through her daughter, but more importantly, his daughter sees herself through Kamala, right? Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that when Kamala got the nomination, and his daughter's one of those young young girls who are just brilliant beyond her age, or I think she's like in first grade and just way too aware of the world, broke down in tears, right? When he made the selection, right? And so he's looking at it through that, right? And so I found that to be really interesting too as well. There's a lot of boxes that she checks that people don't like, but there's also a lot of boxes that she checks that people love. That's because she's such a diverse woman. So, you know, it, it cuts both ways, like a gift and a mm-hmm. curse, I guess. One more thing that I wanted to ask you about is in the piece, you talk about, for lack of a better description, a greater good argument. I feel like Republicans are like, well, this is Trump and we just going to rally behind him because he's our person. And it doesn't really matter how bigoted, how racist, how um, how terrible. In general, how unintelligent. I need to throw that in there. But they just decide we're going to rally around him because that's who we've got. And I feel like Democrats have an opposite reaction. It's like, well, no, like, does this person move me? Like, what are their issues? How do they stand? How do I feel about them? What do they inspire in me? Are we are we taking the right approach with that or the wrong approach? You so on the money with that. I hate that about the Democratic Party. But I'm going to go further, Demetria. I hate that about the black community. So I'm going to parse it out in two ways. 
And Democrats have always looked at things from too much of an intellectual level. Democrats have always been this very high society, snobbish individuals of the party. The Democratic Party is very much a part of these coastal elites dynamic, right? And the Democratic Party has often not been emblematic of the people who grew up like me in the Midwest, in Lansing, Michigan, right? The Not only the, the Bible Belt, because we're so close to Detroit, that Detroit is the black alpha capital of the world, and the hair capital of the world, and the car capital of the world. That right? too, yes. <laughs> My mom like- is from Detroit, yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I feel like the Democrats don't really speak to that um, enough um, as they should because they get on this this intellectual highbrow, right? So that's just number one. Number two, black people in particular kill me. Do you know how hard it is to talk about single-issue voting to black people who are these quote-unquote sophisticated who are these quote-unquote individuals who, you know, I didn't, I'm not voting for that person that one issue. I've read their entire 10-point platform, and I've read their entire 1,000-page policy issue on health care, and therefore that's why I'm voting for him. Demetri, you know how hard it was for people to say they're voting for Barack because he was black? You would hear black people qualify, and you would say, I'm not just, I'm voting for Barack, but not because he's black. No, no, because I believe that he is this and this on this issue. You know, I remember the speech he gave, and he said this, right? Like, we always still feel the need to qualify our vote. We have yet to unlock that privilege of a white man or a white woman who says, nope, I'm voting for that for gun control, period. Nope, I'm voting for that candidate because they are against abortion, period. Nope, I'm only voting for that person right there because they're not going to raise my taxes, full stop, period. We still, as black people, feel like we have to justify all the reasons why we're voting for someone, right? And so a totality of the Democrats being the sophisticated, coastal elites, right? We are the smartest. We need to have the smartest candidate, right? I.e., the Republicans picked the senator, Joni Ernst, who was a farmer. No shade to farmers. Let me be very clear. Shout out to all the farmers out there, right? But it's just like... I don't even know a white Democrat who is a farmer who's elected to Congress, let alone a black person who's a farmer and elected to Congress, because we have to have all these, quote unquote, degrees and jobs that we deem acceptable. That's the Democratic Party. And we fall into a trap of that. And it's wrong. I was very careful, Dimitri, when I wrote this. I threw everything out there and then I edited it from what this is not. And for me, it wasn't about Hillary Clinton. But... I had a conversation with Hillary Clinton when she was running for 2016, and I put it in a piece that I was in a private conference room with her in New York City, and we were talking, and this was a time when the millennials were just not rocking with her, right? They were all on Bernie's side. And so I was like, Secretary Clinton, you really have to fight, you know, for this millennial vote. Like, you're not talking to, you know, millennials, period. She said, Mike, I know. She said, I just want the millennials to know I'm going to fight for them and work on their behalf once I'm in the Oval Office. So I'm like, you have it wrong. You have to fight for them now, right, while you're running for the Oval Office, right? We get so comfortable on our laurels and how great we are that we just want people to accept us on face value that we're going to work on their behalf. And then they say, wait till we get there, right, and I'll show you what I'm going to do. No, the voters now are becoming more sophisticated to know, no, no, we need to know how you're going to fight for us now while you're campaigning, because that will give us an indication of how you're going to fight for us once you're into the office. Voters are no longer saying, I'm willing to wait and take you for face value once you get in trust that, that all will be well. And so that's a longer answer, but the short of the answer is, yes, we are in that position where Democrats have yet to evolve to really, you know, get the courage up to say, you know, in spite of all these things, boom, I'm just voting for this because, yo, it's better than that. 
the Democratic Party isn't there, you know, as a whole. I feel like half my timeline is they're not really, I guess, energetic about Biden. Their primary vote is he's not Trump. And then you have like the other half who's like, well, I need to know more about the issues. I'm in the he's not Trump category. And I'm like, what more do you need to know? I'm the same way. I'm like, like, you know, it's anything better than Trump. But in the piece, that's why I'm like, all right, I'm very big on data. Because if not, you will be making, people will make emotional based opinions or responses or actions based upon a feeling. Basically, my goal of the article was a couple goals. But one of the goals was to, one, prove and spell out. Protect black women at all times that need to be protected, period, and what she's about to go through. The second thing was that, I, I, in our class, state, anybody is better than Trump, period. So get over your feelings. The third thing was I wanted to get the data because I wanted people to see what Trump did for this First Step Act, which is bullshit, and see how wrong that was. But then I wanted to bring in Sarah Eiffel, who really did an incredible tweet thread about why the First Step Act didn't go far enough. But also, too, wanted to highlight all the things that President Obama and the Biden campaign did. But then also, too, wanted to compare Vice President Pence to Kamala. At the end of the day, those are the people that, if we're going to be choosing a vice and assessing a vice presidential candidate nominee, we need to go apples to apples. So now we need to go Pence versus Harris. What does Pence do? And Pence has been left out of this conversation. And his problematic effort that he had while he was in the governor of Indiana, his problematic effort of how the black population, the prison population, damn near doubled the size of the population that is actually in Indiana, right? Nobody is talking about that, right? So what I wanted to say is, all right, look, here's your data. If you need it for the argument, if you're going to be at brunch at your uncle's house or your grandma's house, whatever, this Sunday, Here's the data that you can use to come back any of that nonsense that I need to know more, right? Well, all you need to know is how problematic Pence is and look at how problematic Trump is as comparison to what Harris has done. If you do apples and apples, Harris comes out by leaps and bounds. That's the reason why I wanted to put the data in. But also, too, the other part of it, Demetri, from my article was we also have to be mindful that we just don't do this whole narrative of shut up and vote. My work, even be before this article even came is for your audience that's not familiar with me ladies and gentlemen I intersect politics and pop culture as I get people to see policy through lifestyle through sports music film fashion and technology and my thesis is always that the reason why people have disengaged in politics and political discourse the way that they have is they don't feel like it's relatable like some of us care about taxes not everyone some of us care about education you know not everyone right so I'm like yo how can I get more people into this discourse as I tell people do you like rosé and they say, yeah, and I'm like, here's why you should care about Rosé. Because of the fact of there is a Senate Agricultural Committee, which is my favorite committee in D.C., that controls the agriculture, which controls the export-import tax of, like, agriculture that comes in to the United States, think from France with the Rosé, but also, too, is in charge of, you know, rates and, and commodities when it comes to the United States farmers and growers and, and vineyards, right? And so they literally could control how much your bottle of rosé could cost. And for me, once you start talking about policy through lifestyle, my goal is to attract more people into this discourse so that they can become part of the conversation so it's just not up to the coastal elites. I bring that into this, that thought process, that mentality into this article and just like, Look, you got to hear how black men are feeling, period. I get it. Shut up in the boat. That ain't it, right? Like, they're mad for a reason. Just hear them out, right? Like, just, just acknowledge that you hear why they're mad about this criminal record. Just do a little bit more. I, and I only ask for just have one town hall, right? Like, just, just talk to us. Black, some black men just need to hear it. 
And also, too, there's so many untruths about her record, right? And why not clear that up? You know, why not have that conversation? I'm glad that you brought up black men and their their feelings around this because it's mm-hmm. something that I wanted to address. I spoke about it on yeah. Instagram, but we we need to flush that out a little bit. This is what you wrote about in your your uh, your uh, article on Level was that black men don't feel that they are being addressed. They feel that they're only being addressed through the lens of criminal justice, and they're saying that there's more to us than that. You point out in the piece that the Democrats have been heavily focused on black women. When I read that, I was like, well, okay, but a focus on black women is still a focus on black people. And I feel overall, like when something happens with black men, black women feel like if it's a win for them, it's a win for us. If it's a loss for them, it's a loss for for everyone. And then black women, you know, organize and get involved and stage things and take up the fight, not just join it, but take up, you know, um, the mission. I know from what black women say to me repeatedly is they don't feel that same way. And I think it's... um, emblematic in sort of the way that you express that some black men are feeling in this piece that when when the Democrats are doing all this for black women, black men are saying, well, what about me? Because they don't feel like when something happens with black women that it's part of the us and the we and the way that black women feel about them. So can you address that a little bit? That's a really great question. And thank you for allowing me to, to even bring that up into not just in my piece, but really to the audience and to the space of your podcast. I think that's important. I don't see and and. I'm even now thinking about every phone call and text I've gotten. That's how I start my article off is from the black men in my life, you know, who feel this way. So I'm kind of using that like non-scientific, you know, data pool, if you will, right? Those individuals, they see, share your sentiment, Demetria, right? And in the sense of a win for black women is a win for all, right? And how black women see a win for black men is a win for all. And, and I believe that a, a win for black women is a win for all. We're even recognizing that black women have been at the forefront of the recent protests, movements, rallies, organizing, and that the black woman has been the backbone of the Democratic Party. Think about Roy Jones in, in Alabama and thinking about just all the, the great black political organizers of our current time period. We can even go back in history, but just you don't have to go that far back anymore. In our current time, that's been black women. It's not like an either or. I stand for that. Black women need to be advocated for. Hearing, you know, the black female uh, deaths where they're giving birth is a real number because black white doctors don't listen to black women. You know, there's a narrative, I think, of Senator Elizabeth Warren, if I recall correctly, I think she was one of the first ones to bring up in terms of how we need to protect, you know, she's phrased, framed in black and brown um, caregivers, right? Uh, but that's even black women, how that needs to be increased and make sure they have a fair, livable wage, right? So in the fact that, you know, there's not this conversation around whoever the Democrat is, they need to nominate a black woman to Supreme Court justice, which is a fact, right? Things that we know and support. My issue is we can advocate for that, but then we can also advocate for things for black men. And so I usually put a disclaimer in my article, Demetria, and, you know, my, the editors told me just to stop doing it now because they just don't want that anymore. Me advocating for black men doesn't take away the advocacy for other marginalized communities and groups, right? So for me, it's not an either-or thing. I'm just saying, can we talk about black men more besides from a criminal justice, as criminality, or murder? That's the only time we get brought up. And I think that you can share space, just as like the conversation of black women on the debate stage with primaries, with everything I just outlined. But then we also talk about taxes. Then we also talk about education. We also talk about all these other things, right? Like you know, jobs and infrastructure. We talk about all those things. So 
it wasn't like we can only just talk about black women, not talk about anything else. You can talk about all the things, and now just add black men to all the things too as well. And, and to give you a point to where I'm talking about, music, where it comes from, like a very personal point for me was, I was I was in a conversation with Erica Alexander and a black mayor. He is currently the president of the African Americans Mayors Association. I was interviewing them for a town hall regarding Congressman, the late Congressman John Lewis around a documentary that Erica Alexander had produced called Good Trouble. He had just passed away. And so she was talking about the importance of all the things of his life, but really at the end, the fact that now there's going to be this, this black man lying in state at the Capitol. And then she mentioned that fact of like the fullness of his life and that he was a, a widower. And I don't know, Demetria, you know me, I, I could be a little softy sometimes. Something about that moment struck me, and I started talking, and it literally brought me to tears. Because she was saying, we're going to see that? We never see the fullness of a black man. We never even get a chance to the fullness of a black man in movies, in media, in imagery, as being a man who could be widowed. I don't know the proper gender terminology, so excuse me on this one, right? But to see a, a black man be a widower. That would suggest he was once married, right? We never hear that terminology as often as a black man as a widower, right? The hurt that I felt because of the fact that we just never see it. And I think I had just watched, I'm sure you've seen it too, Demetria. There was this picture in your audience going around on Instagram. Uh, now I know not, not talk about them. It's just called the Black Dad Gang. I did, now I know by the time I did it, of these black men in strollers. America has done a psyche to black men. America has the black men so distraught, so fucked up, that we have to do a peaceful protest to show black men as fathers? We need to do a protest down a street in America with black men pushing strollers to show America that we are fathers? Are you kidding me? Is that where we are? I'm glad those brothers did that, but the idea they had to do it is troubling to me. Because also, too, black men aren't seen as fathers. Oh, why, Demetria? As you know, and your audience may or may not know, because the housing discrimination policies that HUD offered and couldn't be living in homes with Section 8 was there. Oh, and by the way, so then you create a separation for the black men from the household. Oh, and by the way, the prison industrial complex system that has taken away so many black men away from their children and away from their, their wives and partners. It's a, the things that America and government and policy has done to black men that has made us have to do a rally with our kids and strollers. That's what I'm saying, Demetria, right? Like, we need to talk about that on the debate stage to see the wholeness of black men, right? It doesn't take away uh, from black females. Black women. Just because you say black men and then black females, just black women. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing for me. It's a thing. You know, it's a thing for me. I got you. No, teach me. Look, I got to learn. Teach me. You hear me struggling with widower. I'm like, I don't even know the proper terminology. No, you're good on widower. You're good on that. Is, is widower? Okay. Yes, you're good. Okay, okay. Final question. We have had a long conversation and we have talked many times about voting, about voting, about voting. Are, are we going to be able to vote? Like legitimate question. Because like... <laughs> Like they move in the mailboxes, bruh. Like, like there's a global pandemic. They, are we going to go stand in line to vote? Like Michelle Obama last night is like, well, take your brown lunch, maybe your breakfast too. Like, bruh, are we going to be able to vote in November? 
Yo, that was so funny. We so worried about it's come out of light skin. Is she black? Is she Indian? Is she Jamaican? Bro, we might not be able to vote, homie. Like, this is where we are. But to be more serious about it, this is going to be a very complicated process in America. And so if you are listening to Meetra right now, you're listening to her podcast, and if you're hearing my voice, if you are interested in doing a mail-in ballot, I encourage you to call up your city clerk's office today. Do it now at the push play if you're interested in doing a mail-in ballot. Because every state has a different deadline of when you can make a request for a mail-in ballot. That's, so it's a multiple-step process. So you make a request to get a mail-in ballot. Once you receive a mail-in ballot, I encourage you to fill it out day of, either send it back, either put it in the post office, put it in the mailbox. Some states, some cities have boxes where you can put it in. Some states have taken that away. So make sure you do that. Because President Trump has done everything in his power to suppress the vote by way of the United States Postal Service. There are currently up to over, I don't know that number, so I'm going to say over eight. I know at one point it was six. I'm here it might be 12, so let's just say over eight. There are over eight state attorney generals now who are filing lawsuits against the Trump administration regarding what they're doing for the United States Postal Service. But Demetria, I don't know if the lawsuits will be done in time in order to reverse all the action and, and that the, the Trump has done to the, to the post office so that it won't be impacted. I know that uh, the Democrats are trying to pass legislation. They're going to present legislation, I should say, in order to give the, the funding that's needed to the United States Postal Service to secure you know, the elections. But as you know, Demetria, they've already taken the sorting machines out already. They have already literally have removed you know, the mailboxes. And so who's to say if the Democrats are able to pass this legislation and it gets signed off on and that's it. And then, so basically the House will have to approve it, as you know. And then for those who may not know the process, right, the House will have to approve it. Then the Senate will have to approve it. Then as with the president, he has to sign it, but he can veto it. It'll come back to the Senate, but then the Senate then has a choice. Then do they get enough votes to override his veto, right, to make sure that the money is accounted for. But this is the new way of suppressing the vote. Uh, the answer to your question is I simply do not know. Only I can say is do everything you can. If you want to do mail-in votes, to do it. If you're unable to do mail-in votes, do whatever you can. Uh, First Lady Michelle was right. You know, pack a lunch. Make sure you eat before you go. Mentally be prepared to stand in line. Bring some lawn chairs so you can sit. Right? Bring some water. And so fortunate that we have to talk about it like this. But then Demetri, I'm going to go further. I don't think we're even going to know the results of that election that night. I think we're going to get so many mail-in ballots that a lot of it isn't going to be counted. We won't know the unofficial results of the election until a couple of days or weeks later. And then I'm going to go even further. And I have no scientific data, no inside track on any of this. But I believe this is going to go towards the Supreme Court. I believe that Donald Trump is going to contest whatever the vote may be if the initial vote does not go in his favor. And I think this is going to be handled in the courts. And I'm already just prepared for that fight. So... And that's unfortunate that that's where we are. That's where we are living in. Yeah. The times that we're living in. I've also been waiting on a package that was sent overnight delivery last Wednesday. <laughs> it's Tuesday as we're having this conversation and the package, it wasn't in today's mail. So like a week for an overnight delivery. That's where we are right now. I look at it from Democrats, Republicans and MAGA supporters. The Republican Party is so fractured that that whole wing is just mad. They're not really real Republicans. They're just like Trump supporters and MAGA. But Trump and our Republican parties don't even realize that the world community, but generally tends to go Republican, 
count on the post office for all the things, for their medicine. They actually go to the post office to actually retrieve their mail. And so you're actually now playing with the rural vote, right? The rural white community, and yes, there are black rural people who live in the rural South. But that rural white voter generally tends to vote Republican. He's inconveniencing his rural white voters. That's also interesting to see, you know, how do they feel impacted by this? You know, would they be moved to vote for Biden-Harris, or would they be moved to sit out the vote? So I'd be curious to see how that's going to play out. Mm-hmm. So there's so many interesting factors that are just so unknown for this election. To say the least. Yeah, to say the, to least. Say the least. You know, they go by the grace of God after that. <laughs> after that, we're just going to pray. We're going pr- to vote, and then we're going to pray. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. That's it. That's it. Well, thank you, my friend. It was very nice speaking with you. Likewise. I had a really great time. Thank you, Demetra. Thank you for asking, you know, some really great questions. And the questions you asked, you know, regarding my piece is what I hope, you know, conversations I had, you know, whenever they you hear this podcast, whenever they read the article that they will have over drinks or Zoom calls or phone calls, because it's, it's a very nuanced conversation. It, it's very gray. It's, it's not black and it's not white and it's not binary. I think that we've been having such a binary conversation around it that I just want to advance the conversation and insert new things to consider into the conversation because at the end, we have to vote for Biden-Harris, period. It's just period. Um, I just want America, particularly black America and black men to realize that. So that's it. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. No, no, thank you, man. I'm so proud of you to reach all the work that you're doing. Thank so you. Soon. And when you're back in LA, when the world reopens, can we go get like rice with cheese at our spot? You already know. I talk about our spot all the time. Now, I never give it away, but I always tell You see, I didn't name it because I don't want to tell people. I was like, our, our spot? <laughs> yeah, our spot. Yeah, I cannot wait to go. It's going to be amazing. All, <laughs> all right. right. I love you. Love you back, babe. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. That's my boo. I love Mike Muse. So our next treat, another really good friend of mine. I haven't seen her in ages. I miss her very much, but she is one of my favorite key key partners in life and on social media. Natasha Eubanks. She is the founder of the YBF. That stands for Young, Black, and Fabulous, if you're not aware. And she recently launched a new vertical on her site, the YBF Politics, which, as the title describes, covers political developments and political shenanigans. A lot of people may not know this about Natasha, but before the YBF, she was an aspiring lobbyist who graduated from Texas A&M University with a bachelor's degree in political science. So politics is right up her alley. She talks about it all the time on Facebook. So the YBF politics is right up her alley. And I think it's a really smart way to engage her audience. So congratulations to her on this recent launch. Natasha has been very, very opinionated about a black woman as vice president. She wasn't a fan. Nothing personal to Kamala Harris because she spoke out about a black woman being VP and how she wasn't for it even before Kamala Harris was announced as the vice presidential nominee. I think a lot of women might feel the way that she does. She has a very unique argument, but when you hear her out, it makes perfect sense. And I'm like, oh, like I want a black woman VP, but I see where you're going with that, sis. So I wanted to have her on to discuss that. Also, we scheduled this interview, and I didn't even realize when I did it that it was the day after the DNC began. Michelle Obama gave the closing speech to the DNC on Monday night. So while I had Natasha, I wanted to talk with her about Michelle Obama. Because you know how I feel about Michelle Obama. Natasha feels exactly the same way. 
So we had a standout meltdown moment over our fave Flotus, which was wonderful. Are you ready? Do you want to hear it? Let's go. This is Demetria. Hello, it's Natasha. Hello, my favorite friend. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? Good. You know, I cannot remember the last time, one, that I talked to you or that I've seen you. It's been years. Oh, it's definitely been years. I don't even know either. I want to say it was like Essence Fest and I was like in your hotel room, like sprawled across the bed and we were talking about nothing and everything in the middle of the day. No, no, no. You know what that was? Color Comp. It was Miami. Oh, oh yeah. That was like four years ago at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> that means we need a catch up. Like when the world reopens. Girl, something. Whenever, whenever that might be. Right, right. right? The story that I wanted to talk to you about, especially because you launched YBF Politics, and that was in, was that June? What month was it? I feel like it was just July, like just last month. Oh. I could be wrong, child. Okay. (laughs) But you launched YBF Politics. Um, And you know, you're very known for pop culture and entertainment and celebrity and a little bit of politics, but you've branched out. I'm surprised that you didn't do it sooner because you're very passionate about politics and you're all in the mix with everything. I've been into politics since day one, since, since, goodness, since, but like really uh, talking about on the site um, from day one. I didn't talk about it as much as I am doing now, like in a more formal way, but I mean, I always talked about it. I started the site during Hurricane Katrina, so I was definitely talking about politics even then. It's nothing new. I think people just didn't know my background in it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you made it a bigger thing. And one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about is you've been super, super vocal about a black woman becoming VP even before Kamala Harris was named as the pick. But it was something that you weren't a big fan of. So what I said before we even knew Joe Biden was going to be the pretty much the, the, the pick for, for president, uh, for presidential nominee for Democratic Party. Before that, when people were just talking about where black women should be in the administration going forward. And of course, black women should be there, obviously. Where I feel like they should be, though, is in a place where one has immediate impact on what's happening right now. So that means immediate impact on all of our lives in a very impactful way that is going to hold some power and hold some water for years to come and not just a token position, not just a position that has power because of how close you are to the president, not just something that it looks great because you have the VP name attached to it or VP title attached to it because you get to get up on the podium and speak because you get to fill in for the president sometimes and because you get to rule over the Senate whenever there's a huge situation happening. So I wanted there to be a more um, impactful situation where black women were integrated into, like the Supreme Court, because the shit that we're going to take for even getting to that position, it needs to be worth it. To me, this country is more sexist than it is racist in a lot of ways. And if you're going to be a woman of color, the level of shit that you're about to have to take and deal with, and not just take, but rise above and still be the most amazing human being on earth and a hundred times better than every man that's ever walked into the White House or Congress or anywhere else in DC. I mean, it's like you basically have to be superwoman. And I think that, of course, somebody like Kamala would be that person. But is it worth it? And at what cost? What are we gaining as black women? Hillary got dragged for filth as well. She was also running for president. So what are we gaining to go through all of this? 
And I think you even said it. It was like 45 minutes to an hour yep. after she was named. I mean, the onslaught of just, I mean, it was actually a little bit more than I expected to. But come on, questioning not only her blackness, but just even her Americanism. It was birtherism right, right, right again, right in front of our face. Once again, oh, she's not really American. Really? Well, where's she from? Because I, I thought she was born in Oakland. Like, where, where else is she from? Oh, she's not black enough? So I guess that when she was literally giving speeches about being a black woman while at Howard University and literally pledging the oldest black sorority in, in America, I guess she wasn't really black. People grasping at straws to bring her down because they were mad that Joe Biden is the nominee. We knew this would happen. And it didn't come from just white folk. It didn't come from just conservatives. It came from black people, too, and it came from Democrats. What, what are we doing with that? I feel like she was actually more impactful as a senator if we're going to go this route. Why not put a black woman in the position of, of Supreme Court justice? Now, I feel like President Obama should have done that, too, but that's a whole other situation. Could, it, could, could we get both? Sure. Do I trust that America is going to really allow for both? No. No. So if we're going to have one or the other, I personally would much rather the position, the bullshit we're going to go through is worth the reward. The effects that a, a Supreme Court justice will have on our country for 45 to 50 years past this, I mean, that's just, that's a legacy in itself. Those are things that affect our lives today, just like with gay marriage and, and Roe versus Wade and all these other things that we're still being challenged today. But those things affect our everyday lives. A vice president does not, period, point blank. They don't. Could they? Sure. If something happens to the president. Outside of that, no, they don't. It's almost like a campaign tool. Joe Biden's vice presidency was very important, very strategic, and very integral to President Barack Obama winning. President Obama could not be that bulldog. He just couldn't. He's a black man. He couldn't do it. He is a bulldog in, in a sense. Like, he, he don't take no shit, and he is who he is. But he couldn't, he couldn't portray that, you know? So he had to have somebody else do that on his behalf, and that's exactly who Joe Biden is, and that's exactly what he did, and it worked. So, therefore, it was integral and needed for his campaign. Is it needed for Joe Biden's campaign? I don't know, because I feel like just as many people are here for Kamala being the black woman that, to his, to his white-centered male Democratness, just as many people are here for that, there's just as many, if not more, who are against it. What's the point? You know, what are we gaining? The level of anger, disgusting remarks leveled at Kamala Harris. I knew it was going to be bad, but like openly calling her a bed wench. Rush Limbaugh called her a mattress. Isaiah Washington called her a hoe. There's the NBA photographer that got fired for posting something like Joe in the hoe. This is how we're talking about a vice presidential nominee. Like, is there no limits? Because they didn't even go that far with Hillary. They didn't. I don't think there's a limit. And this is why I didn't want a black woman in this position. America doesn't deserve her. Period. And if the only way that you should get her is if she gets something mutually beneficial in return. Do I think this is mutually beneficial? I mean, I don't know what Kamala's, you know, her whole plan for her career was. I have no idea. To me, from the outside looking in, no, it's not. It's just not. He could have appointed her to Supreme Court judge, and I would have been like, here all the way here for it. That would have been beneficial. I'm not sure why we are allowing this. Well, actually, no, I am sure why we're allowing it because America is sexist. You know, you're only going to call out what you're actively against. And most people in this country are not actively against sexism. Yeah. 
Like, it's an inconvenience. Like, you know, if it affects me or someone I care about, they'll say something. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say they, I mean, like, men. There was this great quote that was going around, and I'm going to butcher it, um, but during, like, the, the Black Lives Matter um, protests, what month was that? Every month feels like a year, a couple months ago. But someone said, like, if you're not actively against racism, then you're supporting it. And I say the same thing for sexism. If you're not actively against sexism, then you're supporting it, if by no other way than upholding it with your silence. Exactly. Complicity is just as bad as being that ism, just as bad as being that ist, just as bad as being racist, sexist, all those things. If you're silent and complicit, same thing. But I feel like that's what's happening with um, with Kamala Harris. And I just the level of vitriol for it. And I I just did this great interview with Mike Muse is also going to run on this episode. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about black men's reaction. You know, he's a politico, so he kept it highbrow and he talked about her criminal record. But I was like, you know, the misogyny and her white husband um, also play a lot into black men's response to her, which has been brutal for a lot of men, not all. I can name maybe two people on my friend list that have been um, actively speaking out against, no, three, who have been actively speaking out against the sexism and misogyny and misogynoir that, that is being seen and displayed right now. It's actually more than I expected. I expected silence. Maybe we moved a little bit forward. I don't know. I think um, it's a testament to how bad it is because men don't usually jump in those conversations right, and they usually only right. do when it's like Even really bad. They're like, wait, what? This is kind of crazy. And listen, like I said, no one is perfect. There's no perfect candidate. And nobody needs to hear, well, she wasn't my first or second pick. Who cares? Who cares? Because please believe Joe Biden probably wasn't your first or second pick, but I don't hear you vocalizing that and verbalizing that. I don't hear you. I don't see you putting that into writing. So to me, it feels very intentional. It feels very... um, I'm upset about the world, so here's a perfect person for me to take it out on. I don't think a lot of people do it consciously, just like I don't think racism and sexism in general is a conscious thing all the time. You don't have to be wearing a white hood to be a racist. You don't have to be just a horrible misogynist to be sexist. Those things are systemic. Those things play into your subconscious. Those things are things that you're born with. When you're born with privilege, you don't, you don't even realize it until you actively inter- and look internally to see how you're contributing and how you benefit. So I don't think that a lot of people are just actively like, oh, she's fair game now. I'm about to drill her and, and break her down for filth. I think it's just something innate in a lot of people in this country. This is not the first time we've seen a former attorney general with a questionable past. And I'm even I'm using questionable as a very loose term because I personally don't think it's questionable. I think there was reasons to everything she did and did not do. She has degrees. She is very smart. She is very intelligent and she's very experienced. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt that she didn't just wake up in the morning and say, I hate all black men and I don't want to prosecute any white men that are wrong and I want to prosecute every black man for doing every single thing on earth that's horrible. You know, like, she didn't wake up trying to ruin black people and black men. That was never her intention. So let's give her the benefit of the doubt that the things that she chose to prosecute and the things that she didn't choose to prosecute, there was reasons behind it. There was strategy behind it. Maybe she didn't think she could win. Maybe she thought that there was a bigger issue. It's very odd to me because there's so many white men, black men, white women that could be attacked in that same way with way more questionable decisions that were made, yet they're not. 
they're just, oh, well, you know, maybe they've changed. Oh, maybe they've evolved by now, so I'm just going to leave it there. Well, maybe she's evolved. And actually, she has. She's definitely evolved from some of her stances. And we saw it play out in real time while she was on the debate stage, her taking ownership of things that she did and didn't do and saying what she would change in the future. So it's just odd to me that we give that, that, um, that grace to everybody else. How much do you think that her not being married to a black man plays into the attacks that black men are making on her? It's interesting because I think that this would have happened regardless. I, I do. But do I think that it's worse? <laughs> do I think that it's that, that, the, that the, the level of bitter wall that people have? I mean, I think that that might be higher because she doesn't. She decided to marry who she wants to marry. I don't think this is that is the sole reason why people are acting out. Most black women are married to black men, and most black women experience sexism and misogynoir. So I don't think that that's the determining factor on whether or not a black woman is going to be treated like shit or not. And it's just also odd to me. It's like, well, I mean, y'all don't have nothing to say about the, the many black men married to white women that are in politics and in Hollywood and just on large large platforms y'all have nothing to say y'all if anything defend those men saying that they should be able to marry whoever they want to marry okay cool but the moment a black woman does that it, it, there's a problem it's so blatant and so obvious I don't even know how to address it you know because there's always some comeback and some reason you know well why why does she marry him like she went to a black school how does she even end up with a, with a white man she didn't get married till she was maybe like 40 in her mid-40s and she dated black men before that. We saw them on the red carpet. Remember Montel Williams? Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, she dated Montel Williams. Her, um, they went to, oh, what was their first red carpet appearance? It was either a charity organization or some type of award show that was looped in a charity. And that's when they made their debut. They were in Jet Magazine. Oh, my God, it was so long ago. Um, and they went with his daughter. And everybody thought that it was his daughter's mother. Because they, crazy enough, she does actually look like his daughter. So he definitely has a type. But, yeah, they dated for, for a little while. Yeah. Interesting. No, the only one I've heard anything about is the former mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown. Do we even know that for a fact? Yeah, I'm, I hang in political circles, so I know that he was married at the time, but he'd also been separated publicly from his wife right. for like 10 to 15 years. And he's right. had several high-profile relationships with women who are much younger than him. And this is also a relationship from like, I want to say she was 29, so we're talking about like right. almost 30 years ago. Is that what she's being called a hoe? I still couldn't put two and two together with a hoe came in. I think the bed wench is because of the white husband, but I think the hoe is because... 30 years ago, she dated a man who was <laughs> married, but openly separated. He's still married to his wife, by the way, like all these years right, later. Right. They're, they're like old school black people. They just don't believe in divorce. So she's a hoe, but so what is he? Ain't nobody called him nothing. Right. So herein lies the sexism. And this is what I'm talking about. Like, I, I mean, whether or not you believe that she should be with any married person, whether they separate or not. Okay. But shouldn't you be holding him? to that higher standard. So again, why is she being called a hoe? Call everybody a hoe or just mind your business about everybody. A hoe is anymore. Like because she dated somebody in her hoe? Like am I a hoe because I because I've had uh, a couple of boyfriends? Like I'm confused on what hoe means. We're hoes cuz we have vaginas. That's that's really all it all it is at this point. That's the only qualification right now. <laughs> it's it's sad. I feel like I need wine. Can we talk about something happier right now? 
Girl, what's happening in the world, y'all? I don't even know what's happening. Did you watch? Did you see Michelle Obama at the DNC last night? Of course. Of course. She was everything. Of course, she did exactly what I figured she would do. Being the voice that the country needs but doesn't deserve. I'm not shocked that she pretty much is... Um, probably the most powerful communicator in politics right now, without even being in politics. And I think that what we have been saying amongst ourselves, she's, she pretty much encompassed everything that we, the people, have been saying amongst ourselves, but haven't been able to articulate all in one fell swoop. And also, of course, not on this level that she's on. People feeling seen and feeling heard is a necessity. Um, when people don't feel like they're seen and heard, that's when desperation, anger, and pure rebellion kicks in and things just don't get done. Progress doesn't get made. So at least acknowledging, I hear you and I see you and I see what your issue is. Now here's what we need to do. I mean, it's so simple, but it, it has not done in four years, if you think about it. Yeah. When has Trump ever said anything that you have felt? Ever. Ever. Like the height of COVID when like a thousand people a day dying in New York. You just want a president, even if it's only lip service, you just want someone to acknowledge we're in a horrible position and I have compassion, which is what Governor Cuomo was doing, which is why half the country stopped watching the president and started watching the governor of New York for leadership. What I really respected last night about Michelle Obama is that she didn't mince words. He's not fit and it is what it is. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. You know that hit him where it hurts. When when you call him incompetent, which is what she said, that he is not fit to do this job, that hits him where it hurts because he's a narcissist. So anything that attacks that ego, oh God, he can't take it. Like an hour later, he was on Twitter popping off. Not in a way that he would have with any other woman. So you see how he still checks himself when it comes to her. Well, you're even like a narcissist. You know who you can rumble with and who you cannot. It's so hard to sit back and watch. Like, okay, if that's the best you can do. The, the main thing I was worried about is that he called her Michelle. How dare you, sir? Like, I call her Michelle, but like casually is like cousin, auntie, friend. But like, no, you're, you're too casual, sir. You're too familiar, as the old folks would say. <laughs> too familiar. You don't have the range don't have to call her Michelle. I did appreciate that she gave that speech and her like black girl hoops. Come on, big big gold hoops. I was yes. like, come on, come on, bring the hoops to the professional setting. And that boat necklace. I, the funny thing is, that was the very first thing I noticed. So I didn't even really hear the first like two minutes of what she was saying. I was just like, we a boat necklace. So I start punching it in on Google. Like, where do I find it? I need it. That thing so got to be sold out by now. Like, I still haven't found out. Everybody's oh. talking about it, but nobody's saying the designer. Oh, it's by a black girl. I'll send you the um her name on Instagram, but it's got to be gone by now. Okay, it's like an Etsy, because you know she only made, like, five. I don't remember her name. I saw somebody posted in my comments, because I was talking about the um the necklace and the hoops last night. Yes, yeah, I'll send it to you. But I really so appreciated cute. her, because I was like, she said flatly, like, I don't really like politics. She said that, like, a million times. Yeah. To, like, you know, go in and break out the flat iron, because she's been rocking natural hair. And she's been doing her makeup different. She does very natural makeup, but last night was a full beat. So she went back into Flotus mode. I liked what the, I can't remember which commentators, I think two of them said it, but basically that she cashed in on her political capital last night. Yep. And I 100% agree with that. And I think it's a lost art form too. 
I guess in an era where everyone wants to be heard and wants to be seen doing something daily, she pops in and she pops out and it makes her more effective. And never, never speaking on Trump directly, like ever. And so for this to be the time that she said, I'm going to, I mean, what other time is there? Yeah. Damn time. Called him so, by name. So there was no misunderstandings. <laughs> Let's be clear. So, um, yeah, I mean, I love her. I think she's the second coming like she's everything i just i just don't think america deserves her you know if if biden wants to appoint her to supreme court hey that's not necessarily politics she does have a good ivy law degree she would be fit hmm Hmm. do you remember where you were when you heard trump was elected i was hosting my own podcast with a live episode because i just knew it was going to be a historical night with a woman to be named president. So I had friends over. I had like 10 or 15 people in my place. I mean, it was like a Super Bowl party. And I don't know if you saw that SNL episode like a couple weeks after the election. My election party was that exact election party on that SNL episode where we started off just super excited. And I actually at that time lived right across the street from the Jacob Javits Center where her her whole setup was so there was a lot of people outside and we could see from my window like all the people standing outside with the big screen tv and i mean we felt like we were part of the party as the night went on and it's funny if you listen to that podcast <laughs> it just gets worse and worse and worse it just went from extremely excited to just depressed upset tears the next morning when i got up Yes, I was hungover, but also I was just very upset. I thought it was a dream that I just couldn't wake up from. I bawled crying. Turned the TV off, turned everything off. I bawled crying for about four hours straight because I I knew what that meant. I knew it meant not that the world is racist. I already knew that. But I knew that it meant the, the people who weren't racist didn't care enough to stand up for people like me. And those people were probably smiling in my face all the time. So I saw what the next four years was going to be. It was going to be some type of shutout, and not directly, but very indirectly, a shutout of people of color, a shutout of women, a, a dismantling of, of aspiration and hope and spirit. And I knew we were headed toward a dictatorship because he had already displayed that during his campaign. Like, I remember, like, that feeling of doom because they didn't call the election that night. And I woke up the next morning and there was a press conference and Hillary Clinton was going to concede. And yeah. it, she was late for, like, an hour and she just looked like she'd been crying all night. And yeah. I was like, oh, dear God, this is bad. Yeah. This is really, really and, bad. And while we were from watching from my window, the convention center, the crowd dispersed. I mean, the crowds were overflowing you know how big the Jacob Javits Center parking lot is. Yeah. It was overflowing that parking lot. By the time the night was coming to an end, right past midnight, I mean, the, the level of crowds dispersing, it just was so sad to watch. It just went from, like, thousands of people to, like, ten people. It just felt like you watched the air being knocked out of America and being knocked out of every person that is not a racist white man. Yeah. I can't live through that again. I have a deep-seated fear that, that he could get another four years. I just, I can't envision what that'll look like. That's going to be hell. At the time, we didn't know. We knew voter suppression happened. And this is not new. But we didn't know the extent of the voter suppression until, I mean, a year or two later. We never had a chance. Had I known, I would have never even got my hopes up. But no matter how many more measures we've taken to curb that, who knows the other measures that are out there 
the other factors that are out there working against us when it comes to voter suppression that we won't know about until another two years from now. Whatever happens, I don't think I'll be shocked by it. Will I be extremely upset and disappointed and hopeless? Yeah, yeah. probably. This all sounds very like B613, which at one point sounded like it was, it was a soap opera. It was far-fetched. It was over the top. And now it's like the nightly news. <laughs> you can't even make this up anymore. Like, Scandal wouldn't even, the show wouldn't even be interesting at this point because we're living it. I went back and started watching Scandal because I never watched the I final saw. episode. Um, yeah, because you follow on Facebook. So I went back and watched Scandal. It's so not scandalous now. And back then, we were just, like, dying. Like, people would not go out on Thursday nights. Like, you would make your plans until <laughs> after Scandal went off or you'd leave early to get home. And now Scandal is like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. All right. Isn't that crazy? It's sad is what it is. Like, we're so unstable that the most unstable thing that we used to have seems, like, normal. Safe, actually. Well, thank you, madame. You are wonderfully informed about a little bit of everything. My Aunt Rosie <laughs> said that's what makes an intelligent woman. Aw, thank you. You as well. And we have to catch up. Like, when the world opens, like, I will come east or you can come west, but I have to see your face. It's been too long. Okay. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks for thinking of me. Thank you, we'll babe. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Isn't she lovely? I love Natasha. So I have one more guest this episode. She should be a familiar voice to you, Dr. Stacy Patton. I had her on... During the uprisings, so maybe two or three months ago, I asked her to come on because I was curious as to why the news kept playing that George Floyd murder video on a loop. I had an inkling that it had to do with lynchings somehow, and I called her up and was like, is is my inkling correct? And she was like, actually, it is. America has a history of showcasing, highlighting, celebrating brutality against black people, particularly black men. The history of lynching is part of Dr. Patton's specialty, but her core primary specialty is black children. Dr. Stacey Patton is a nationally recognized child advocate. She earned her PhD in African-American history from Rutgers University. She is the author of That Mean Old Yesterday, a memoir, and Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Children Won't Save Black America. She's also working on her forthcoming book that we talked about on a previous episode, Strung Up, The Lynching of Black Children and Teenagers in America, 1880 to 1968. The reason that we're bringing Dr. Patton back is because, as you may know, Selah Marley, daughter of Lauren Hill and Rohan Marley, recently uploaded a video, two hours, where she spoke at length about being beaten by her mother. She talks about being hit with belts and switches. She talks about the dysfunctional relationship between her parents and how her father was often absent and it left her mother very angry. Sayla says that she is traumatized over the beatings that she endured from her mother. She says, quote, honestly, guys, I'm just hurting. I can't even front that I'm not. I've been hurting for so much of my life and so much of my life has been me avoiding how much I'm really hurting just from the circumstances. She did call her mother, quote, an amazing woman and Sailor recalled what she calls trauma. She says, quote, she would spank us to no avail. She was just very angry. So, 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 so angry. She was literally not easy to talk to. And then half the time we didn't live with her. It's crazy. 
I'm playing this trauma back in my head as I speak to you. She recalled her mother beating her and her siblings with a belt. Sayla said, you walk to go get the belt, the switch, this, that. And my mother is an amazing woman, but she obviously didn't do everything right. Sayla said that she is traumatized by the sound of the belt hitting. She also recalls the threats, quote, the constant threats. That belt, man, that's that slave shit. All black parents were on that shit. Lauren Hill, surprising to me, responded. It, it was lengthy. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. But she said, quote, Sayla has every right to express herself. I encourage it. But she also got the discipline that black children get because we are held to different standards. The discipline was seen through the lens of a young child who also had no place to reconcile me as a mom and me as a larger-than-life public figure. It took me a while to realize that my children and probably everyone who knew me saw me in this duality. Hill continued, If I am guilty of anything, it is disciplining in anger, not in disciplining. The toxic venom I ingested for standing on principle and confronting systemic racism far before it was the thing to say or do everything you now celebrate everyone for, that's a dig, the people who called me crazy have yet to apologize and say, oh yeah, we are wrong. Of course, that seeped into my home. I think that's her justification for for hitting her kid. There's so much more. I'll read you this part too. Lauren Hill says that her daughter is on the road to healing and contextualizing her childhood and is allowed to process what she experienced. To her critics, Lauren says, if you come for me, come for your own mama and those absent fathers. Come for them too. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, Caribbean parents, African parents, and everyone else damaged and judged for being black and forced to conform and assimilate to Western standards of order shaped through the filter and lens of anti-blackness. That seems like a lot of big words to justify beating your kid. I'm not a fan of it, if you can't tell. I got hit as a kid and it had a disastrous effect on me. It took me decades to get past some of that. I don't think people should hit their kids. I know that sounds crazy, but like, Demetria, you don't have kids. Do I need to have a kid to tell you you shouldn't hit somebody half your size? So Dr. Stacy is back. And as you can guess by the title of her book, Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Children Won't Save Black America, you can guess that she's also not a fan of whooping children. I wanted to have a deeper discussion than, you know, is it good or bad to, to whoop your kids? I wanted to actually talk about why are folks so obsessed with hitting their kids? It's deeper than just, oh, they must be disciplined. There's a lot going on there. And Stacy is here to break down what all is going on. Hello. Stacy. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Well, Stacy, I feel like our conversation today is going to get us in trouble. That's fine. Good trouble. <laughs> Good trouble, but trouble nonetheless. We're about to talk about a topic that is very passionate for black folks. Black folks, it's a belief system about hitting their kids. Oh, yeah. It's sacrosanct. So when two women who neither one of us have children are having a conversation about not hitting kids, that just makes it even worse. Because people are going to be like, y'all ain't got no kids. These kids mm-hmm. need to be hit. You're the expert here. You've done the research. Okay. Okay. All right. So can we dive in, Stacey? Yes, let's let, do it. Let the trouble begin. Okay. So Lauren Hill, Rohan Marley, they have an amazing daughter, Selah, who I remember when she was born. She does this vlog two hours long. And in the vlog, she talks about how 
her mother used to get switches and belts to beat her. As a child, she talks about how angry Lauren Hill was. When I heard it, I didn't think it was necessarily going to become a story because I was like, oh, Lauren Hill got switches and belts for her kids. Are people really going to be mad at that? Because that's a common black story. A lot of us got switches and belts in our backgrounds. But it became a story. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it became a story because her daughter uh, took to social media to talk about it, to recall those details and to share the impact that it had on her. And I think there was one line in particular that probably incensed a lot of people when she basically said that black parents um, were on that slave-ish, basically. And so I think that's probably what sparked a lot of people to call her disrespectful, to accuse her of not only airing um, her own family's dirty laundry, but the broader black community's um, dirty laundry. And I think people took effect to her basically saying that if you beat your children or if you got beaten by your parents, then they were um, enslaved, operating from a slave uh, mentality. Why do so many black people like to hit their kids with belts and switches? Is it deeper than slavery or is there something else at play here? I think there's a number of different uh, components here. I think one, there's this myth that beating your child is a black thing. It's not. Uh, it's not even a parenting practice that's native to us. We did not bring this parenting practice from our West African cultures across the Middle Passage to America. A lot of people like to say that, oh, when we were brought here to America, they took everything from us. They took our names. They took our religious practices. They took our culture. They stole everything from us. But the one thing that seems to be in a lot of people's minds a, a thing that survived the Middle Passage experience was, is whooping your children's ass. Uh, so they believe that that's something that existed in Africa, survived the Middle Passage experience, uh, hundreds of years in enslavement all the way through today. But when we look at the data on attitudes about corporal punishment by race, also across racial lines, um, what the data shows you in terms of attitude and also uh, the deployment of this parenting practice is that the majority of parents across race lines, with the exception of Asians, the majority of parents across race lines uh, believe in corporal punishment and believe in hitting their children. So we have this myth that this is just something you do as a black person. But there's a different kind of historical specificity to the problem within our culture. It is during the slave experience that this type of coercive, you know, harsh, violent parenting practice got cemented and infused into our, 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 our family structures to prepare children for uh, life in enslavement. And it amped up during Jim Crow, where now you have um, the, the very real possibility that children could be lynched, that they could be killed with impunity. So there's this belief that in order to prepare 
a black child for the harsh realities of race in America, uh, we have to train their bodies. We have to destroy their natural instincts to be free, to you know do what normal children do, so that they're not lynched by the Klan or a, a mob or shot by the police or you know uh, incarcerated. And so there is another myth that if you survive childhood, if you become an adult who's fully functional, who's never been arrested, who doesn't engage in criminal behavior, who acts civilized, oh, it was because you have to thank your mama or daddy who processed your body through violence with switches and extension cords and belts. It shows that we internalize these racialized messages about black humanity, that the only way that we turn out fine is through violence. And it adheres to the, the old slave logic, the old racist slave logic that this is what you have to do to black bodies. And so it's the internalization of racism, it's historical trauma, but it's also um, uh, just brain science, it's, it's neuroscience. So that when you hit your child, and we have 50 years of, of uh, scientific evidence to show this, that it, it, it's traumatic, it's a violation to the body, it impacts brain development. So if you're hitting a child in the early years of their development, what happens is the messages of love and pain fuse together in the prefrontal cortex of the brain and becomes a biological experience that gets normalized. And then we grow up to, with this compulsion to repeat those behaviors and to draw on the master narrative of racial oppression and potential racial death to justify it in our communities and also Christianity there's this widespread misinterpretation of the Bible that Jesus wants you to whoop your child that you're going to go to heaven if you beat your kid so it's a whole bunch of different layers that impact the reason why we embrace this practice I remember growing up watching Oprah and she would constantly talk about stop hitting your kids stop hitting your kids stop hitting your kids so this narrative that it's bad to hit children has been, um, at least in like pop culture zeitgeist, for a very long time. But people remain so adamant about it. I guess I don't understand why it persists. And like people will get really, really angry. Like even on your page on Facebook where I saw you discussing this, the idea of like do not hit this, per this child who is smaller than you, who's half your size, like do not hit them, causes people to personally attack you or say really nasty things to you. Like why do people get so adamant about the idea of not hitting a kid? Well, because when they were growing up and somebody was hitting them, it was the people who loved them. It was their parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, the village. Um, and they were told, I'm doing this um, because I love you, to protect you to save you. And that messaging is part of the brainwashing, the trauma bonding that happens, um, you know, between a parent and a child who's on the receiving end of the violence. And again, it's, it's, it's deeply tied to brain development. So you grow up thinking that this is for your own good. And so part of the anger when somebody challenges that and says, no, it's never okay to hit a child. It wasn't okay that you were, you were hit. They really believe that you're disrespecting their mama, their grandmama, grandfather, preacher, everybody in the village who said, this is good, that this is going to save us. So that they're, they're triggered by that. Nobody wants to look back and, and think, oh, my parent actually hurt me, did something wrong to me, because everything in the culture sanctions it. We celebrate it in a lot of rap music. I mean, think of Tupac, 
you know, talking about his mama grabbing him and put, you know, give, giving him a whoop into his backside. All of our comedians make jokes about it. They laugh about it. Our preachers um, misquote the Bible and say, spare the rod, spoil the child. When that verse isn't even in the Bible. Everywhere you look, you know, there is this widespread cultural sanctioning and embracing of hitting kids is because we live in a culture that's rife with childism that we don't believe that children have the same right to bodily integrity you know as adults i think that it's normal and natural to hit children uh it's colonized thinking and people think that oh cultures have been hitting children since forever it's not true uh when you look at pre-colonial west african beliefs about children and child rearing practices or in South America or in other indigenous cultures, that kind of coercive behavior and violence against children or this idea that children were born in sin, that wasn't part of their spiritual cosmos. That wasn't part of the ways in which they, you know, uh, recognized children and talked about them. It, it's part of the colonization process. And so when you call it out, you know, people are looking at you like, what? This is crazy. Look at our society today. Our society is so messed up because these kids today aren't being disciplined anymore. It's not true. The majority of kids move through childhood being hit. We have 19 states in this country alone, all of them in the South, uh, where it is still legal to paddle students in, in public schools. Every state, with the exception of New Jersey and Iowa, allows children to be paddled in, you know, charter schools. Um, so we are a, a, an ass-whooping culture. And so here we are, these voices on the side saying, no, actually, all this hitting of kids is probably at the root of a lot of our social problems. I got paddled at private school when I was a kid. Like, I remember being in, like, sixth grade, if I, you got, like, a red tally, you had to go to the principal's office, and she would pull out this, um, essentially, like, a ping-pong paddle with three holes in it for, like, the extra impact. And she would hit you three times on your butt. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just think about that. Schools are supposed to be places where you teach uh, good citizenship, uh, critical thinking, you know, troubleshooting problems, conflict resolution. Schools are also places where you have mandated reporters. These are teachers and principals who, by law, are required to report instances of abuse. You also then put paddles in these teachers' hands. And what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of these school districts where paddling is still legal, they have uh, something called immunity clauses. So that if you injure a child while in the process of paddling them, you're immune from prosecution. But if you're a parent who whoops their child at home and that child comes to school with bruises on them, then you know you could be arrested and have your child taken out. But we have instances all across this country where students have suffered injuries, broken bones, blood vessels, injured genitals, you know, things like that from paddling. And we also know that a disproportionate number of the kids who are subjected to paddling are black kids. How is a learning environment supposed to be positive um, if it's unsafe for kids, if, if children are allowed to be insult, assaulted um, by adults um, with instruments in their hands. It's absolutely absurd to me. You know, some people will say to you, you referring to what we call a spanking as an assault, they would say that that's doing the most. How does this rise to a level of assault? Well, first of all, a lot of those people who accuse me of that aren't being truthful. 
because we don't have some universal definition, particularly within African American communities, about what constitutes a spanking or a whooping or whatever. Quite frankly, for me, it's all semantics, whether it's a pop, hit, spank, whoop, beat, it, it's all violence. You know, people like to call it spanking um, to try to lessen you know, the, the violence, right? They're just, they're just engaging in wordplay. But 50 years worth of science shows us that spanking um, is harmful to children's brain development. Even if you don't leave a mark on a child's body, it can still uh, set a child up for all kinds of psychological and physiological, um, you know, health impacts. When you hit a child, whether it's with a belt, a switch, or your hand, the brain uh, triggers certain hormonal reactions within the, block, the body. So one of them is cortisol, which is used for our fight or flight response. So when we, we sense fear, you know, or we're afraid when we experience a threat. You know, evolution has wired us to get ready to, you know, run, to freeze, or to fight back. Children experience that same exact reaction when a parent threatens to be, this is before they even put hands on them. And so that cortisol floods the body, right? You get you know, amped up heartbeat, blood pressure rising, muscles tensing, stomach reactions. Remember when you were a kid, when a parent said to you, you're gonna get a whooping. Remember what happened inside of your body. And if this sort of thing keeps happening over and over again, it stresses out the body, it's toxic stress. It's stressful to the immune system. It causes inflammation in the body, uh, structural changes to the brain. It doesn't matter whether you're hitting a child with a belt or with a hand. If you just hit, swat them twice on the backside, the brain does not make a distinction. It's all the same. There is no difference between abusing a child and spanking a child. The brain does not say, oh, wait, that's just a spanking. Suspend the cortisol reaction. Don't speed up the heart rate. Don't, you know, disengage the fight or flight response system. It does not work that way. The brain does not work that way. I just remember being terrified. My father was my primary disciplinarian. When I think about kids being spanked, I always think about my dad because that's like my experience. When I was on your page earlier today, you were talking about the data shows that it's primarily mothers, women, who are the disciplinarians who are doling out a lot of these punishments to the kids. Absolutely. Every single year, the Children's Bureau puts out the annual child maltreatment data. And what we see is that across race lines, when we look at national data, um, the primary abusers of children are women. That, that's, you know, that those are just the cold, hard facts. And they also are the primary um, killers of children as a result of, of maltreatment. And those numbers are also true within African-American communities. And sometimes when you point out that truth, you know, people get upset and they say that you're bashing, you know, black mothers, that you hate black women, that this is misogynistic, or there's this sort of intuitive response to offer some sort of moral justification for why these parents abuse or kill their children. They located in, uh, relocated into poverty, into being a single mom, um, you know, racism, fear of the police, you know, all of these other factors. But we would never grant that kind of intellectual grace to men 
who beat women and end up killing them, or even if it was fathers who were the primarily primary abusers of children, we would never offer that same kind of courtesy uh, to those groups. But the data is what it is, and we have to start talking about maternal violence as a um, and child abuse in general as a form of um, of domestic violence. We have to have those conversations. Just like domestic abuse between adults, hitting children is a learned behavior. It's a targeted behavior. Stacy, they're about to stone me. And you, because you said it. I just asked the question. <laughs> so let me, let me be very specific and surgical. The majority of black mothers in this country do not abuse their kids. The majority of black mothers don't kill children. But when we look at the data or the reported data, and, and, and let me say this, that those child maltreatment reports only capture a fraction of abuse. There are lots of kids who are actually walking around getting abused every day and their cases never you know, catch the attention of law enforcement, mandated reporters and such. But based on the data that we have, this is, this is what the data shows within our communities, within our communities, black communities, the biggest perpetrators, the primary per- perpetrators of abuse and fatalities are black women. Is that because black women are more likely to be the ones that are caring for the children? There's proximity. That's that either the primary caretakers and that statement is also true for other groups as well a lot of kids growing up in single family homes but even data shows that when there is a man in the house mothers still tend to be the primary abusers i grew up in a house like that i grew up in a middle class african-american home father was there responsible there was no abuse from him no none of the regular pathos that people like to point to to explain child abuse and my adoptive mother was the person who was toxic and and abusive she was verbally abusive and a tyrant towards him so this is not something that is just confined to mothers who are poor or moms who are just who are single moms uh, or moms who are just living in the hood and stressed out this is something that extends across class and education as well so for the black mothers who are hitting their kids who are being abusive what is going on with these particular black women there are environmental factors uh, frustration and anger over an absent father who's not there to help her out could be lack of resources i also think a lot of it is untreated trauma there's a lot of us walking around as, unrecogni- uh, as victims of unrecognized trauma. So for example, there's a lot of people who I hear say to me, well, you never hit a child when you're angry, right? It, it's bad if you hit them when, when you're angry. And I always say there is no such thing as um, hitting a child when you're not angry. That's not how the brain works. I mean, it's a whole host of different reasons. Sometimes it could just be retribution. I was whooped as a child. So I'm going to pay it forward onto these surrogates, my children, rather than the mama or daddy who, or grandma or grandpa who tortured them in the first place. It's a whole bunch of different factors to explain why people do this. But a lot of it has to do with their inability to regulate their own emotions. 
So when you put it like that with all of these factors that are contributing and things that are happening in the brain and culture and family and all of these things, are people ever going to stop like hitting their kids? Like it just seems like a hurdle to overcome to get there. It's a lot of hurdles because, you know, first of all, you've got a people who were taken out of their natural environment and bought into this toxic, spiritually dead, insane white culture where there is generation after generation of serial degradation and trauma that's been unleashed onto black bodies. So that's part of the problem as well. Then there's colonized thinking, colonized parenting uh, when it comes to children. So we haven't you know, interrogated, well, how do we get to this, uh, this point where we think that children are born in sin? Right? Where do those ideas come from? What, how do we think about children before them? Oh, well, we thought that children were gods, that they were reincarnated ancestors, that they were born blessings, that you would never hit a child because it would chase away their spirit gods, that it would destroy them, that hitting a child destroyed you. Like We don't interrogate those things and go back to our original beliefs and thinking about children. So we have to you know, reverse engineer our cultural thinking about kids and purge our culture from these toxic Western, Westernized ideas about children. There's, you know, the trauma of slavery and brutality of lynching and so forth, this intergenerational transmission of trauma that's altered our own bodies as a people. So we have to learn how to figure out how to, as, as a community, contextualize everything that has happened to us contextualize how our children went from gods to property to these kids to nay need more weapons we've only been free for about 150 years and then when we factor in jim crow it's really only about 50 years that we've been allowed to be parents right like legally have title to our children and and have them not uh, operating within the confines of separate but equal. But I also think that we help, you know, aid and co-conspire with our continued oppression when we break and beat and distort our children. So much of our parenting is detached and fear-based. The best way to resist white racism is to raise future generations of unbroken black children who are not navigating the world with fear and broken spirits and traumatized brains and health problems that get sown when we beat them and you know uh, weaken their immune system. So it's a lot of work and it first starts with some serious education and therapy. If I am a parent and I have listened to this episode and I think, oh my gosh, I have traumatized my child. Or you are a parent whose child has come to you in the much, and, and maybe the way that Sayla Marley came to her, came out um, about her parents and she said, I am traumatized by the way that you hit me. How do parents make amends? Well, you don't gaslight them the way Lauren Hill did her daughter. You don't engage in a narcissistic exercise where you lay your body out as the, the sole victim and make excuses for why you hurt your child. You have to listen. You have to make your child feel safe to come and share their truths with you. Um, you, you have to take responsibility. You have to be accountable. 
be honest and say, look, you know, this is how I was, I was raised. And um, it might not have been the best way um, for me to have been parented. I didn't know um, any better. I did, I repeated, you know, what my parents did and their parents did and what everybody within our culture said uh, was the right way to raise a child. And, and to apologize to your child. That's one of the most powerful things to do is to apologize and to take responsibility and to not make excuses. I'm telling you, I, when my father, my biological father, I met him one week before he died. And I had all kinds of anger and disappointment at him for basically abandoning me and my sister. And I had questions and I had feelings and he allowed me to say what I needed to say. And then he just looked at me and he said, I am so sorry. And that very short, pithy sentence healed so much in me and validated me. He didn't have the emotional literacy to go into details to sort of surgically dissect, you know, why he did what he did or to even ask me further details about the impact that his absence had on my life. But that simple, powerful sentence right there was everything for me. And that I felt like I could begin, you know, to open up in the short period of time that we had together and to try to understand where he was coming from and grant him grace and empathy and understanding. Um, my adoptive mother has never done that. She'll just say, well, I did the best I knew how or the best I could. And so when I hear that, and I think so many other survivors hear those words, it shuts us down. We're like, you know what? I'm not going to even talk about this. Or other family members will say, well, that's your mama. That's the only mother you have. And don't talk about this. Be grateful. All of those sorts of things. This is what keeps us from coming to the table and talking about it. I believe that you can say to your parents like look this really hurt me I didn't like it it's had some damaging effects on me but I still honor and I love you two things can be true but we need to heal this so that you know we can purge some of this hurt and anger and really disrupt these cycles of violence within our families and by extension our communities do you have alternatives for people who say um this is all I know, and I want to do something different, but I don't know where to start. You have to do the hard work of trying to figure out what is triggering you. A lot of times when people hit their children, they're actually responding to their triggers from their own childhood. So if you grew up in a house where you know somebody was always yelling at you for doing very normal developmental behaviors or beating you from it, um, so you then grow up have a child of your own who then does the same very normal developmental behaviors and you're triggered by that you're thinking oh well when I was a kid I got beat for this for rolling my eyes at my parent for sucking my teeth for slamming a door all of those things right and then the compulsion is just to react to repeat the same cycle of behaviors and reactions that you endured so half of that compulsion to hit, to yell, has to do with your own childhood. So people have to sit and think, well, why am I triggered by this? 
Why do I want to smack my child for rolling her eyes and sucking her teeth at me? Right? Because somebody taught you that that's disrespectful. Well, what is so fragile about your ego that you're ready to strike a child, a four-year-old, a five-year-old for having a natural human expression? Which, mind you, if you ever watch a West African film, all you hear are people sucking their teeth and rolling their eyes for four and a half hours, right? But it's during the plantation experience that those types of normal communication you know, intercultural communication patterns got demonized and misinterpreted and recasted as defiance to authority. And so we integrated that into our parenting practices, right? So it, it's, again, it's this decolonization process that parents have to undergo and say, let's, let's look at the things that really piss me off as a parent. Let's look at these behaviors and get to the why. I wonder why I react to a child doing this this way. And I think people need to do the work of understanding uh, brain development, child development. I have parents who say to me, my child is two years old and he doesn't listen. That's why I pop him. And I'm like, dear mama, dear daddy, your child is two years old. He can't listen because that part of his brain has not yet developed. Understand what is developmentally appropriate so that you can match those expectations, you know, with your child's behavior. Your, your, your uh, goal as a parent is to guide your child through these developmental processes. But what happens is they end up, you know, using violence and coercion, which then becomes counterintuitive and amps up the child's misbehavior, deviance, uh, lack of communication and trust, the lying, all of the very things that you're trying to prevent, precocious puberty. So I have parents who say, oh, I whip my daughter because she's twerking, she's acting grown. And then I'll ask the parents, so when did you start hitting your child? Oh, I started popping her around, you know, 18 months, two years old. And they don't realize that at that early stage, they're sowing the seeds for precocious puberty because a child's body is a biological organism. If you're hitting the child, stressing them out, it's sending the message to the child's body to hurry up and develop, grow so that you can procreate because you need to hurry up and do this because I might not survive this stress. And so you're triggering early puberty, even in early adolescence. And so people really need to do some work in understanding brain development, working on their triggers before they can even consider, like be open to, okay, this is how you handle this type of behavior, biting, hitting, not doing work, defiance, you know, all of those sorts of things. Parents gotta do the work on themselves first. There are people who will hear what you have to say and they will say, Sister Stacy, I love you. I feel you. I feel like your heart is in the right place. You have done lots of research. You have interviewed the people. You have seen the science. Um, you are an expert in this field. And they will still say, but you are not a parent. You are not raising a child and you don't know what it is day to day to be in a house with a kid who is not behaving, who will not listen. What do you say I'm, to those parents? I'm, I'm humble enough to admit that I don't know what it's like to raise a child. I've never raised a child. And I don't know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night to a crying baby. I don't know what it's like to try to get a child ready for school and they're curling up their toes in their shoes, uh, don't want to be strapped in a car seat. 
I don't know what it's like to have my teenage daughter cuss me out, disrespect me. I'm, I'm humble enough to admit that I don't know what those experiences are like. And I understand that parenting can be one of the most challenging things ever. And particularly as a black parent who may be parenting while having their heart on edge every time their child leaves the house, not knowing what this cruel world may have in store for them. I get it and I empathize with that. But I remember what it mean, what it felt like to be a child. I have not forgotten what that felt like to be on the receiving end of an adult um, who is angry, who is violent. I've not forgotten that. I've held on to that. A lot of people will tell me that I don't have a right to talk about child discipline because I haven't given birth. Well, that logic says to me that, oh, so if I become pregnant and give birth to a child, then there's some you know, hormone or something that's going to be released in my body that says, oh, hit your child because this is a natural and normal part of the birthing process. It, it doesn't work like that. There are people who say you can't talk about this because you don't have a child. Well, okay, by that logic, then you're saying that, well, I don't have a wife. So that means that, you know, I can't talk about domestic violence. Um, if I want to properly bury the dead and become a mortician, should I have died first? If I want to become a, a, a doctor who treats testicular cancer, must I have testicles and cancer to do it? So all of that is deflection. It's, it's, it's deflection. My reproductive capacity has nothing to do with the facts of science, the facts of history. If being a parent is a prerequisite for somebody to talk about how we need to treat children in a more humane way. And don't listen to me. Listen to the thousands of people every year who uh, molest children, who abuse them, who even kill them. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Stacey. You're so welcome. I hope that was good. On social media, Dr. Patton has written extensively about this situation um, with Selah Marley and her mother, Lauren Hill. Apparently, some of those posts made their way to Lauren Hill because on Tuesday, Lauren Hill responded directly to Stacey Patton. I haven't been able to find the complete letter. I just saw a screenshot, but much of what Stacey has said online, she also said in the podcast. I think it's worth noting Lauren Hill's response directly to Dr. Patton. The part that I did find said, quote, if our children are indeed gods, then this means that they have the power to both create and destroy. With the natural immaturity and ignorance of consequence that comes with childhood, guidance and instruction are absolutely paramount. In the face of immediate danger, even more so. Consequence is not just a biblical concept, but life itself demonstrates that some actions have harsh and immediate consequences. As a parent, everything I did was to get in front of this reality and not cry regretfully later for not doing what was necessary. I don't agree all forms of delivering this message are abuse. In our interview, Dr. Patton addressed most of the kinds of things that Lauren Hill said in her rebuttal to her. So I will let it stand. I will, I will end with this. Stacy said it very politely. Me, not so much so. Stop beating your kids. It fucks them up. As a kid who got beat, it fucks them up. So 
That is the end of our episode. Thank you so much for staying with me on our very long journey today. It is greatly appreciated. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to Ratchet and Respectable on whatever platform you are hearing my voice on. And if you need some Ratchet and Respectable in your life between now and next episode, you can follow me on all social media platforms at Demetria L. Lucas. That's definitely everything. We've covered so much today. I'll be back next week with a new episode. So talk soon. Okay, bye.